did I say that I'm very happy to be back with you once more? It's six weeks since I was here and uh, a much longer time than that, of course, before, since I was here last summer. Come this summer, I will have been preaching for 60 years. Um, it all began with Seaside Mission at Lamlash in the island of Arran, and that was the summer of 1957. And need we say that's not just quite exactly yesterday. Um, over these years, obviously, I have prepared many, many sermons. But I've never, honestly, I don't think ever, spent as long preparing what I'm going to share with you this morning. I first got them in the outline, the main outline, in three points, oh, many, many months ago. I tried on a couple of occasions to clothe that outline with the detail, and it just didn't come together. And I sensed the Lord saying, well, you don't need it just now, Sandy, it's for later on. But in more recent weeks, it has come together. And so we're going to look this morning at a subject that I don't remember ever hearing a preacher preach on. And that subject is, how should a Christian relate to each member of the Godhead. Now the Godhead is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Lord has given me three words, which I believe are not the only words by any means, but they're rather key words in keeping us on track in the way we relate to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now we've already had a, a good reading this morning in Romans 8, so I'm not going to read a passage of scripture as I normally would do, I'm just going to read actually one verse, because in this one verse, you see, Paul refers to the entire Godhead, and not just here but elsewhere as well. He says in Ephesians 2.18, for through him, and he's talking about the Lord Jesus, for through him we both, that's Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Only through Jesus, access to the Father God, but not without the help of the Holy Spirit. By one Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning eager to hear what you have to say to us. Because all that you say to us is special somehow because you are our Heavenly Father. It's important for us, some things more important than others. And we ask that you continue to speak to us throughout the remainder of our life on planet Earth because we need to hear your voice telling us this is the way, walk in it. And so we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit as he instructs us and inspires us through what has been prepared for this morning. In Jesus' name. My first point may surprise you, as we think of the way in which we should relate to the Father. I say, oh well, trust, love, worship, yes, obviously. But the word that is sometimes missing, or at least the practice that is sometimes missing, is the word repentance. Many years ago in the country of Rwanda in Africa, there was an outstanding Christian leader, I've forgotten his name, but when he was taken home to heaven, someone who was speaking at the Thanksgiving service about this man told the congregation, this brother always, but always, signed his letters 
in the same way. He always signed every letter, yours, repenting and rejoicing. Well, he said now he's rejoicing more than ever before in heaven, and he doesn't have to repent anymore. Oh. But you see, I suspect that some Christians at least have the kind of vague idea that repentance really just belongs to the time when we're becoming Christians. Time of our conversion. Oh, no, 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 no. It's got to go on right through our Christian life. Let's look at the example of some of the preachers in Scripture. What preachers have said about repentance. Just one, first of all, from the Old Testament. One very well-known verse of Scripture in the prophecy of Isaiah 55, verse 7, where Isaiah is led to write, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Oh, you say there's no mention of the word repentance there. No, but there's a very clear mention about the need to turn to the Lord. And that's what repentance is really all about. Literally repentance means, in the New Testament meaning of the word anyway, a change of mind. But you see, when we change our minds, as all of us do in many situations, you end up thinking differently, speaking differently, and acting differently, because you've changed your mind. You might get up on a sunny morning and say, well, I think I'll go to Auburn today, and by the time you've had breakfast, you say, no, I won't. <laughs> I think I'll just go to St. Andrews instead. So you've changed your mind, you're going somewhere completely different. This repentance business is all about changing our mind, our attitude, whatever. But it leads to a change of direction. And here is Isaiah calling people that the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thought and turn to the Lord. He will have mercy on him. And to our God for he will freely pardon. Now into the New Testament. Mark's Gospel chapter 1. We read there about the baptism that was going on in the days of John the Baptist. He was doing something completely new, you know. It wasn't done before. Baptizing people as a symbol of their desire to repent before God and get right with God. And it was called the baptism of repentance. So the first thing these people were hearing as they came anywhere near John the Baptist was repent, 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 repent. And later in that same chapter, verse 14, we find our Lord Jesus beginning to preach. And what does he say when he starts to preach? Well, it shouldn't surprise us that he starts on exactly the same note. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is advancing. It's near. The kingdom of God is near. It's breaking in upon us. It's time to get right with God. Repent. Well, we go on into the book of Acts and we discover that when the Holy Spirit has been poured out, on the little church small church to begin with 120 people Peter gets up to preach, preaches Christ his death, his resurrection the outpouring of the spirit and his preaching is so powerful it's so effective that the congregation just have to respond they call out in desperation what must we do what shall we do 
And the answer comes quick and clear from Peter, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. Here again, with the call to repent, comes this call to baptism. Baptism is not simply a spiritual thing, you see. It's a, it's a physical thing. The physical and the spiritual go together. And also comes the promise, of course, of forgiveness of sin. But the keynote there is the call, first of all, to repent. Just start thinking differently. Why are we having so much evil evidence in the world in these days? Because an awful lot of people, their thinking is not just corrupted, it is perverted, it is vile, it is awful. And behind that, of course, there is Satan and his many demons making people think things they shouldn't be thinking and say things they shouldn't be saying and do things they shouldn't be doing. In the following chapter, chapter 3 of Acts, verse 19, still Peter preaching, and he says, Repent and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Sins wiped out. Times of refreshing from the Lord. That's a lovely thought. But... It's all about turning to God in repentance. The world is facing their own way. Unbelievers are facing their own way. And they have to call, hear this call to turn around. You're heading in the wrong direction. You're on the road to destruction. Turn around. That's repentance. We go over to chapter 17 in Acts. We find Paul wandering about in the city of Athens which was largely Gentile territory. And there he observes many altars and statutes and he concludes that a very religious law, whatever else they are, in Athens. And they've even got a statue or an altar to an unknown God, just in case they omitted a God who might be offended. Just let's put one extra statue up. So Paul says, well, I'm going to tell you about the real God. And he begins to preach. And he says... In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Nobody is left out. This is a universal call going out throughout the whole earth. 24-7. Repent. For, says Paul, God hath set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. It is public knowledge, says Paul, I'm telling you, it's public knowledge in Athens from now on anyway, that God has chosen the judge and his name is Jesus, and he's actually raised him again from the dead. And he'll be doing the judging when that time comes. Oh, a call to repent loud and clear. Then we go to chapter 20, and Paul, again, there is speaking. In verse 21, he's saying goodbye to the elders of the Ephesian church, knowing he will never be around that way again, they'll never see him again. And he says in his farewell talk to these elders of that church, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what happens throughout the church pretty often is that we just drop the word repentance. Sounds a wee bit demanding. Sounds a wee bit heavy. So much of the church talks about faith. 
And even faith is a bit suspect, so we'll just talk about commitment instead. And so the gospel is presented in ever softer terms, and the call to repent is conveniently omitted many times. That's not good. That's not good. We have to repent, as Paul said to the Ephesian elders, but we also have to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And these two things ought always to be present when somebody is becoming a Christian. There is this turning away from my self-centered lifestyle where I'm wide open to Satan manipulating me and pulling me this way and that way and tempting me this way and that way. I will turn around from that selfish lifestyle and turn to God. He is now my focus. Not Satan. My back's to Satan. Hallelujah. My face is towards God. Hallelujah. I'm turning towards God. And I'm having faith. And this is one of these places in the Greek where it doesn't say faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus and I are together from then on forevermore. Faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. But accompanied by repentance. One more in Acts 26. Paul preaching again and he's preaching in the hearing of the Jewish king Agrippa and he's telling the congregation there about his testimony. He's telling them what happened on the road to Damascus when the Lord stopped him in his tracks and saved him from his sins. And the Lord said to him, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to open their eyes and turn them, this turning again, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So it is a deliberate turning away from Satan to God. And not all churches, but some churches, when they're baptizing believers, they particularly include the question to the person being baptized, do you renounce the devil and all his works? In other words, have you well and truly turned your back on Satan? It's a very good thing to do that. It's a significant thing. When we turn to God, we're turning our back on Satan. Because before we turned to God, we were facing Satan, but we didn't know it. But he was pulling our strings, and we didn't realize it. <coughs> repent, repent, repent. So there are preachers, John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus himself, and the Apostle Paul. And they're all hammering away on the same note. Now that's for the sake of unbelievers, that they might become believers in the Lord Jesus and be saved from their sins. I've only about the church. Well, let's just take a moment to look into Revelation. Because there you will remember that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are letters dictated by the risen Lord when he came back in a special appearance to the Apostle John, when John was in exile on the island of Patmos. And the Lord Jesus dictated these seven letters to be sent to seven churches in what we know now as modern Turkey. And the first and best known of these churches is of course the one at Ephesus. And the Lord Jesus, as he sends this letter to the church at Ephesus, says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and haven't grown weary Sounds like full marks up to this point, doesn't it? Ah, oh, but then, there's a but, a yet. And Jesus goes on and says, yet, I hold this against you. 
You have forsaken your first love. Remember then the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the thing you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If you don't repent, says the Lord Jesus, the king and head of the church, the church will disappear. I'll make it disappear. Oh, oh, solemn warning indeed. See, these people were doing very well. They were energetic and enthusiastic and working hard and all sorts of things were commendable in the life of these Christians in Ephesus. But for some reason or other, they had grown weak in a very important department. They had grown weak in the department of love. You know, I've lived long enough to see that most Christian congregations some time or other seem to have a split they're always so serious people aren't company sometimes it would seem for good reasons but sometimes the reason is a lack of love now there's no sign of that happening here I find and you are very loving people who love me for some reason or other and love each other and that's so vital because truth without love will not do. The gospel is all about truth. But my, it's also all about love, is it not? The love of God that resulted in the cross of Calvary and our salvation. That's love and truth. And they must be together. So these people in Ephesus have grown cold, perhaps to Jesus himself, perhaps to one another, perhaps to the unbelieving community around them. Love is so, so very important. Over in chapter 3, looking for a moment at the church in Sardis, there Jesus sends his letter to them and says, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I'm very sad to be saying this, but again, looking around, listening, observing what's going on, I believe these words could be addressed to many a congregation today. You have a reputation of being alive, but there's not much sign of life. Your spiritual life has died down to the point of being hardly noticeable. That's very sad. So the sadness the call comes clear, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember that for what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. Ah, oh. you see, when we disagree as Christians, as it's quite normal for us to do from time to time, we can allow that disagreement to drift on to serious dislike, bordering on hatred, and Christians falling out and parting company. It should never happen, but sadly it does. And that reminds us that when we sin, and sadly we all sin in various ways at different times, when we sin it's so important that we get right with God again as quickly as possible. And that means repenting. It means we're coming back to God perhaps with tears in our eyes and saying, Father, I'm so sorry things have got to this stage. I should never have done A, B, C or D. I should never have thought these thoughts. I should never have spoken these words. 
I'm repenting, Father. I'm confessing it was just downright sin. And I ask you in your mercy to forgive me. Yours, repenting and rejoicing. So let's not think repentance belongs just to the time of our becoming Christians. It doesn't. There's rather an amazing thing comes to light in Romans chapter 2. As Paul writes to these Christians in Rome, he includes in chapter 2 and verse 4 these words. Do you show contempt? He's talking about God's judgment. He says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience? Not realising that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. You'd be inclined to think that when we sin against God and, and grieve his spirit and caught him sadness and sorrow, you, you would think he would be after us with a big stick, he would be, be, be hammering us somehow. But this verse says the opposite. Paul is saying that in many situations where people need to repent, God doesn't hammer them with a big stick. He shows them unusual levels of tolerance and patience and kindness. I've experienced a bit of that, have you? God melts our hearts with his kindness. And that makes us want to repent. Ah. So I'm suggesting to you that one key word in relating to God the Father must always be this note of repentance. It should be there at the point of conversion it should remain there throughout our life. doesn't mean you all have to go home and start writing letters and signing off yours, repenting and rejoicing. But it was a very, very good thing to put into print. Now, point number two. How should we relate to our risen, loving Lord Jesus Christ? Well, again, you say it's kind of obvious, is it not, Sandy? We, we trust him, we, we talk to him, we seek to follow him, etc., uh, etc. Et but you see, there's one word that comes out again and again that is sometimes forgotten. And it's a short, simple English word. Obey. Obedience. Obedience. Hmm. And to get at this, the best way to begin is to look at the example of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because remember our Lord Jesus says, follow me. And sometimes that word follow carries the meaning of imitate me. Do as I have done. Behave the way I behaved. Behave the way I still behave, says Jesus. Obey me. Romans 5, 19. Uh, Romans 5, 19. Uh, where am I? Yes. Here is Paul speaking to these Christians, writing to these Christians in Rome, and says, Just as through the disobedience of the one, that's Adam, the one man, the many were made right sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. This is a strand of teaching not often emphasized. That Adam was not just an individual who happened to be the first person God created, 
he actually was the head and representative of the entire human race and when he sinned he dragged the rest of us with him that's what the Bible tells us we are sinners we're born with sin in our hearts because of Adam and of course we kind of like the sin in our hearts and we develop it and it gets worse and worse and by contrast our Lord Jesus is the head of a new community a new humanity the church of God the church of Jesus each is a representative of millions of others but what does he say what does Paul say about the obedience of Jesus Adam's sin made many of us sinners Adam's disobedience and that's the essence of sin the opposite of disobedience obviously is obedience and Paul is teaching us that through the obedience of the one man Jesus Christ the many will be made righteous what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary is called among other things an act of obedience yes and Philippians 2 spells that out in more familiar terms to the church in Philippi Paul writes about our Lord Jesus Christ and says being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross he became obedient to death now we tend to think of the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross as an act of supreme love which it was an act of supreme sacrifice which it was the Bible tells us that it was also an act of the most costly obedience anybody has ever shown why did he come into the world to save us from our sins who sent him his father did the father sent the son to save us from our sins the father suffered too as well as the son and the father knew that to do what had to be done our Lord Jesus would have to do something incredibly costly and it would be an act of supreme and amazing obedience that comes out again in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 what do we find there? we find there in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 although says the writer Jesus was a son he learned obedience he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him he learned obedience he learned the hard way he learned it by doing it and doing it meant being nailed to a cross he learned obedience from what he suffered and then this strange statement once made perfect surely he was perfect before he died on the cross ah yes he was perfect morally and spiritually 100% perfect well, what does this mean then? there's a certain word in the New Testament which means perfect and it's used of repairing fishing nets a fishing net that catch fish doesn't have to have every square in that mesh exactly the same measurement in the last millimetre as long as it's more or less right as long as the one thing it's got to do is to catch fish as 
long as that net is good enough for catching fish, it could be slightly imperfect in the way it was made, but it catches fish. And that's the meaning of the word here. That Jesus became perfect, made perfect. A perfect saviour. A perfect saviour. Without his death on the cross, he could never have become our saviour. He didn't just become our saviour. He became the perfect. Ah, perfect saviour he is. A perfect saviour. Perfect source of salvation for all who trust him. No. For all who obey him. And that takes us very helpfully into the next point. We've thought about the example of Christ. Now, we just touched in the Hebrews 5 8 verse on his expectation of us. And that Hebrews 5 8 says, in effect, he expects us to obey him. Of course, that comes out elsewhere. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? But don't do the things that I say. Don't call me Lord unless you're going to obey me. You're not my Lord unless you obey me. I, I'm not your Lord unless you obey me. He expects us to obey him. And the verse I know I've given you before because I tend to give it all over the place when I go out preaching. It's there in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 where Paul says to these Christians in Rome through Jesus and for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles and of course the Jews as well to the obedience that comes from faith. Well if the faith comes first, yes repentance perhaps first or mingled with faith repentance and faith first but that has got to result in obedience, otherwise it's partly fake. Oh, what? The obedience that comes from faith. Well, well, well. Let's look at three more things. Towards the end of his ministry on this earth, we know very well our Lord Jesus spoke very special words to his disciples. And he said on one occasion, not long before he left them, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Do you realize that the Lord Jesus has given our unbelieving friends, the unbelieving world, one test to apply to us who claim to be saved people and Christians. Is it our doctrine? Is it the truth that we proclaim all the time? No. That's important. Of course it is. It's our love. When the unbelieving world sees Christians who don't love each other, oh, I don't want anything to do with that lot. Look at them. They go through all the motions of being Christians, but they're not making a great job of loving each other. Mm. It's the one test. It's important we don't fail that test. You must love one another. Two warning shots which are commands. And that leads us into the final point. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says to the Christians there, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, with whom you've been sealed to the day of redemption. When I repent and believe and trust my whole life into the Lord Jesus Christ... He moves by His Spirit into my life. He comes by His Spirit. I can't come any other way. Comes by His Spirit into my life. 
And he's there. The Spirit of God is there. And the Spirit of God is the most powerful person on planet Earth. He's omnipotent. God is omnipotent. The Godhead is an omnipotent Godhead. The Holy Spirit is part of that omnipotent Godhead. He is omnipotent. Most powerful person in this room. Not me, not you, it's the Holy Spirit. But you know what? It's very clear from Scripture that this person who has this incredible power is very, very sensitive. Now sometimes we say about somebody, oh, be careful what you say there, she's a wee bit touchy. Mm -hmm. She's very sensitive. Mm -hmm. Well, the Holy Spirit is as sensitive as he's powerful. And that should be a big warning to us because he's very easily grieved. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit by our disobedience to the Lord, by our sinning, we can grieve the Holy Spirit in a way that is most sinister. And I don't know any more sinister way of grieving the Holy Spirit than politely ignoring him. But I know some churches where it's almost as bad as that. They're much, they're much happier with Father, Son and Holy, Holy Bible. They're not too sure about Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He can rock the boat. Don't want, don't want our boat rocked, thank you very much. But without doing that, without ignoring the Holy Spirit, which is a dreadful thing to do, we can grieve him. We can grieve him. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit, does he go away? No, no, oh, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit does not leave us. He has come in for good. What does he do then? He goes, if you can imagine it, into a quiet corner of our life and says, okay, you don't want my help. You're on your own. And I think that's one reason why so many Christians find the Christian life a real struggle. Because they've grieved the Holy Spirit and they haven't apologized, they haven't repented, they haven't got forgiveness of it. And they're virtually trying to live the Christian life on their own, and that's very, very difficult to do. So it just doesn't pay, even from a purely selfish point of view. It doesn't pay to grieve the Holy Spirit. Then in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says something that seems even stronger. He says, don't put out the Spirit's fire in IV translation. Don't quench the Holy Spirit, King James Version. The Holy Spirit brings spiritual fire into our lives. And some people say, oh, I don't think I want too much fire. All these gifts of the Spirit are a bit scary. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge. Hmm, I don't think I want that stuff. No, I'll just leave that out, thank you very much. Well, that's tantamount to quenching the Holy Spirit. Putting the fire out. I like the love. I like the help. Please don't give me the fire. But you know we're meant to be a people of fire for God. And if we're not, don't be much impact in the world. But you folks are seeing impact in your community, so you are on fire for, for God. Hallelujah. Right. We're to bear in mind in our relationship with the Father the need for repentance. We're to bear in mind all our life, all our time, in relating to the Son of our Lord Jesus, the importance of careful, not minimal, but careful, adequate obedience. 
the third point you can see it coming how do we relate to the Holy Spirit and the word that is very clear here for me perhaps even clearer than the call to repentance in relation to the Father is the word dependence who are you depending on we're all depending on somebody or something many people depend upon their own ability I'll do it my way I can do it I've been around long enough to know I can handle life yeah I can cope Hmm. and then something happens that they can't cope with and it's very dangerous because you see I've got the impression I could be wrong but I don't think I'm wrong that many Christians assume that when we become Christians and the Holy Spirit moves into our life he will automatically do all that I would like him to do for me without my asking him he does a great deal of what I need him to do without my asking him but if I never ask him mm, makes him feel a bit unwanted our safety lies in daily hourly moment by moment dependence on the Holy Spirit next Sunday as Graham mentioned is Pentecost Sunday some churches will completely ignore it it'll be just one more Sunday well well in a total sense we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit you remember after he was raised from the dead our Lord Jesus met with his disciples on a number of occasions sometimes a single disciple sometimes a group of disciples and we read in Acts chapter 1 that after his suffering he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs he was alive Uh, on one occasion when he was eating with them he gave them this command do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised which you heard me speak about for John immersed in water but in a few days you are going to be immersed now wait a minute why am I not saying the word baptized because the translators of the Bible didn't translate the Greek word that's why it's baptizo in Greek and it's baptized in English and it's not hard to spell it's the same word with a different ending and baptized of course has come in this country to mean sprinkling babies for many people that's not baptism it's not baptism baptized means to immerse in a few days said Jesus you are going to be immersed in Holy Spirit well Sandy you missed out the word the it should be the Holy Spirit it's the in my Bible but I've put it in brackets why? because it's not there in the Greek in several places in the New Testament the word the in front of Holy Spirit is omitted other places it's not why? well we don't know for sure but the explanation I think is probably absolutely spot on where the word the T-H-E is included it's drawing attention to the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person if he wasn't a person he couldn't be grieved he's not just some vague power he is a person as you and I are persons but why then should sometimes the word the be omitted to be left out because in these contexts the desire is to draw attention to his power doesn't cease to be a person but it's drawing attention to his power 
And Jesus went on to say after that, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. So to attempt to live the Christian life without dependence on the Holy Spirit is nothing short of madness. <laughs> madness. There are a few mad Christians going around that do <laughs> Madness. It's not, a, not possible to live a Christian life the way it's meant to be lived without dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now this is not just a sign of old age, I don't think, in my experience. But it happens to have happened in old age. The longer I live, the more deliberately, deliberately, I depend on the Holy Spirit. When I come to have my prayer time in the morning, the first thing I ask is, Holy Spirit, please help me to pray. Please help me to pray. Hmm. Galatians 5.16, which I must have shared with you again and again, sums it up so perfectly. Live by the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're meant to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God as well, of course. The word of God is equally important. But live by the Holy Spirit. Involve Him in your daily life, not just in the spiritual bits, but in all of it. In all of it, your shopping trips, oh, your holiday plans. Mm. Involve the Holy Spirit. Be deliberately dependent on Him. And of course, finally, that also applies in special situations. Ephesians 6.18, Paul says, Pray in the Spirit at all times and with all kinds of prayers. There are different kinds of prayers. Prayers of praise, and prayers of worship, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of intercession, prayers of confession, a variety of different kinds of prayers. But at all times, says Paul, let the Holy Spirit help you. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you as you pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. And in Philippians 3 verse 3, the same Paul says, we worship by the Spirit of God. Many people attempt to worship God and it's not very inspiring. Honestly, it's not. The last time I was with you six weeks ago, at the end of the service, Graham said, we'll sing one more song. Did we? Oh no. We sang about five or six. The Spirit of God just led Graham to go on, flowing, 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 flowing. And the more you go on in unhurried worship, the closer you get to the throne of God. I want to touch the throne of God. I want to get as close as I can to the throne of God when I'm worshipping. I'll never do that on my own, never. I need the help of the Holy Spirit to lift me up, to inspire me, to focus me, to give me that dynamic that enables me to worship with all my being, all my being. Many people try to worship just with their voices. Oh, they stand like statues. They don't raise a hand or anything. Oh, oh, no, no, some just manage to get up about this length. Our whole body can be used in expressing worship. But we need the Holy Spirit to inspire us and motivate us. I don't know what God is saying to you this morning. But I do believe, for me at least, there was something special about this, this outline. You know, if you look at these three words, repentance and obedience and dependence, the initial at the beginning of each word spells another word. R 
Do you remember Moses had a rod as well as a staff? A staff for his kind of shepherd's crook that he poked the sheep with when they weren't going fast enough. His rod served other purposes sometimes. Remember early on as they left the land of slavery in Egypt, they were attacked by the Amalekites. The Amalekites are a type or symbol of satanic interference and hatred for the people of God. And Moses took his rod and he went up on a hill and he held up his hands with a rod in his hand. And as long as he was holding up that rod in his hand, Joshua with the troops on the ground was winning, 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 winning. But the moment he got tired and his hands began to droop. And the reverse took place on the battlefield. Joshua and his men were being defeated. And Moses had to get Aaron and Har who were with him to hold his hands up so he could hold the rod up. The rod in Scripture, in the Old Testament, has a great variety of different meanings of the word rod. But that, the meanings include a symbol of divine authority. And why does the Church of Jesus need that in these days? We need the rod of God in these days. The devil is having a field day in our world in these days. And it seems that nobody is putting the brakes on him. Nobody is stopping him. And yet when we read our Bibles and learn from the word of God, we're forced to believe that we who belong to Jesus Christ and often feel so pathetic, so weak, so inadequate, we actually hold the balance of power in this world. When the church is wielding the rod of God, and that means being properly related to Father, Son and Holy Spirit at all times. When we properly raise the word of God in spiritual warfare prayer. Satan better look out. He's no longer, no longer going to get it on his own way. Every time. Far from it. Let's pray. Father I want to thank you for giving me this rather different, unusual message for this morning. And I want to ask too that you will seal that word in our hearts. It will not be something we'll have forgotten about in a few days' time. Father, you want us to hear your word in ways which are life-changing. Will you make us willing to adapt, to adjust in any area of our lifestyle that we might be in the place where you can trust us with maximum blessing maximum power maximum authority we have sung this morning about being more than conquerors through him who loved us in our heart of hearts we want to be that and we ask that you will help us to accept Yes, the discipline required to be all that you want to make us. In Jesus' name.